Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network, Christian Studies channel, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Fraser McDiamond, one of the hosts on the channel. Today, I'm talking to Tobias Tanton about his new book, Corporeal Theology, Accommodating Theological Understanding to Embodied Thinkers. Tobias is an early career fellow and tutor in theology at Harris Manchester College in the University of Oxford. Tobias and I actually know each other from our time in theology circles at Oxford, so it's a true pleasure to be talking with him today. Tobias Tanton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Fraser. It's lovely to reconnect in this way. It really is. Tobias, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a a bit about yourself. Sure. So, as you mentioned, I'm currently an early career scholar in Oxford, Um, but I grew up in Australia and did my undergraduate study there. I normally tell people I've had a long and indecisive academic career. Um, I started off studying commerce and information technology uh, and then went to just do a year of theology and got hooked uh, and spent many more years uh, doing undergraduate and then graduate theology with a splash of classics to try and get some language skills up. so I've been somewhat of a career student um, and happily um, some of my earlier uh, studies in computer science have been quite helpful actually in trying to understand cognitive science and the kind of science and theology dialogue I've been involved with. Um, I came over to the UK uh, as a graduate student uh, 10 years ago, uh, in fact, to the college uh, where I'm now working, Harris Manchester College. Um, and spent five very happy years as a graduate student um, and subsequently um, had uh, a brief appointment doing a postdoc uh, at the University of Cambridge and then taught for a while at an Anglican theological college, Ripon College, Cudston, uh, before starting in my current post. That's quite the career trajectory. Thank you. Um, I'd love to hear how you came to write your new book, Corporeal Theology. Yeah, thanks. It's, it was um, a kind of, again, a slightly winding uh, story in how I ended up writing this book. It, it probably began when I did my undergraduate dissertation and uh, I was working in biblical studies at the time and looking at uh, the fourth gospel uh, and the metaphor in John 3 about being born from above or born again, depending on how one translates uh, that passage in the fourth gospel. And as I was writing an undergraduate dissertation on this little metaphor, um, I got into the literature on theories of metaphor um, and books such as Metaphors We Live By by Lake and Johnson, quite a famous book which argued that uh, metaphors are deeply embedded in the way we think 
and we tend to use metaphors to illuminate really abstract ideas um, by connecting them up with more concrete ideas related to our embodied experience. So we might say affection is warmth um, and have that kind of underlying metaphor at work in our thinking, and that might spawn all kinds of ways of talking, such as she gave me a warm smile or he gave me the cold shoulder. Um, And basically from there I went down the rabbit hole. This kind of opened up a whole world of theories of metaphor, which also related to cognitive science um, and how we think uh, and how that thinking was potentially related to our embodiment. Um, And that opened up to me uh, a a kind of new world in the cognitive sciences. And I came across this emerging paradigm in the cognitive sciences known as embodied cognition. Um, And so the book really is an attempt to um, work my way through that emerging paradigm in cognitive science and embodied cognition and to ask in what ways uh, might it be interesting for theology um, and how what might one get a dialogue between theology and embodied cognition going. Um, so that's the genesis of the book in, in a kind of narrative form of how I stumble into it, if you like. Yeah, that that really resonates with me personally. I think a large part of 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 why I was drawn to theology was the sort of the many and various ways it's come to be embodied, um, be it through ritual, music, art, poetry, um, all of which I think your book touches on. So that was really beautiful to read about. Your well, first think- chapter. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, I, th- I think that is another strand, actually, in that um, another uh, personal biographical reason for writing this book, perhaps, was um, that when I started studying theology, you know, I, I had all of these questions, and um, I think I was becoming increasingly dissatisfied with um, a kind of religion that that really centered on propositional thinking and texts. And I wanted something uh, more mysterious that could somehow speak to transcendence um, and capture things in in non-linguistic and non-propositional ways. Um, And so part of the book perhaps is also me trying to work out why things like ritual and music um, work for me in religious settings, I think. Um, so I resonate with that, uh, what you found interesting in the book. Yeah, it's lovely to see that narrative strand come into the, into your book. Um, your first chapter introduces us to the principle of divine accommodation. Could you expand a little on that idea for us? Yeah, so the, what the first chapter is trying to do is really... Um, develop a a methodological framework for how am I going to get this particular bit of cognitive science to speak with theology. Um, So that's the aim. And to do that, I uh, lean, as you say, very heavily on the principle of divine accommodation, which is the idea um, that uh, if God uh, communicates or communes with humans, Uh, then a transcendent God has to do that in a way that accommodates our limited understanding, our limited cognitive capacities, if you like. 
Um, this is a principle that's been around in theology for a long, long time. Um, people tend not to write uh, specific books on it, but you'll you'll see the principle kind of come up and being used uh, in many patristic authors uh, and in many influential theologians down the century, um, Athanasius, Augustine, Aquinas, uh, Calvin, Luther, uh, you know, you name it. Um, so the, the idea has been around for a while um, and has been used in different ways in the history of theology. Uh, but I thought it, it would make a particularly helpful framework for the kind of science and theology conversation I wanted to have. Um, so the idea here is relatively simple, actually. If, um, if God's revelation, however one thinks of that, um, is accommodated to human capacities, um, then that should make theologians interested in the cognitive science, which can tell us about human capacities, um, and in particular cognitive science. And embodied cognition also makes some interesting claims in this area about the way in which our cognitive capacities might be shaped uh, or influenced or limited or even constrained by the kinds of bodies we have. So what does it mean to accommodate an embodied thinker um, uh, was for me a, a way of getting the conversation going between theology and embodied cognition. Yeah, your, your book's very clear that theology can't happen, it can't occur without consideration of anthropology. Um, and actually, I've, I've always found you know, it's strange that anthropology doesn't crop up more in, in you know, um, in our study of theology and in the way we we think about how we think about God. But really, you're you're bringing anthropology really back to the the very heart of theology. Um, you've said a little bit a little bit about this already, but but why is why is this so important for your project? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair observation. Um, and again, you know, I, I think it's the principle of divine accommodation. If we think that God interacts with human beings um, then uh, and in particular needs to accommodate uh, human beings as as they are in in the present um, then thinking about what the human being is is uh, is crucial for thinking about who's the recipient of of this kind of theological understanding is to be so um, so yeah, I think you know, I, I think it is uh, that principle of divine accommodation invites an anthropology. Um, I think I'm not the only one here. There are you know writers like James K. Smith, um, as well as uh, you know many really interesting feminist theologians um, and others who have talked about kind of epistemolo epistemologies of embodiment um, and uh, thinking of ourselves as embodied thinkers um, as as being necessary, given that theology is something that human beings do. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just um, kind of download some kind of angelic theology um, or some kind of pure theology that didn't require mediation, that didn't need to be put into our language. Um, but as limited, finite human beings, um, we don't really have that luxury. And so anthropology um, has to feature, I think, because theology is a human task at the end of the day. Um, and so therefore, if humans are fundamentally embodied and our thinking is also sh shaped by that embodiment, um, then 
we ought to ought to be interested in anthropology. That's a really good way to to move on to uh, your next topic in the book, which is the concept of embodied cognition. Um, so it's an idea that not all of our listeners will be familiar with. Um, so would you mind just explaining it briefly? What do, what do we mean by embodied cognition? Yeah, great question. Um, and not not one that's easy to um, unpack briefly. Um, uh, Sabrina Galonka and Andrew Wilson, um, who work in this area as cognitive scientists, kind of said this is the most, in an article they wrote, said this is the most exciting idea in cognitive science right now. Um, but in the next sentence, they say, but like all good ideas in cognitive science, it immediately came to mean at least six different things. And so embodied cognition is a bit of an umbrella term for um, a paradigm in cognitive science, which considers the way in which our thinking is shaped by um, the facts of our embodiment, our physiology, the kinds of bodies we have. Um, one helpful way of understanding it, I think, is to see that it's in part a reaction to what's gone before in the cognitive sciences um, and a movement that you might call cognitivism, uh, which often has a computational metaphor of the mind at its centre. So it wants to talk about human thinking in terms of information processing, um, that is, algorithms working on ad abstract symbols, much in the way that um, a computer uh, would uh, process ones and zeros. And this kind of way of thinking um, really had very little use for the body. Um, if the body was important at all, it was just there to provide life support for the brain. Um, it also detached cognition somewhat from perception and behavior, action, motor movement. Um, it kind of thought that uh, perception was the input for cognition. Um, but once you kind of had that input, there was some kind of central processing cognition proper that took place. Um, and then that would lead to behavior and motor movement and, and action and behavior as kind of output. Um, and so if there's a, a recurring theme in embodied cognition, it's to break down that kind of division and to say that the perception and the action uh, and the, the movement and behavior are all um, interlinked uh, and and one if, if one separates these conceptually, uh, one can lose sight of a lot of what's going on in human cognition. Therefore, because the kind of perception that we have obviously depends on the kinds of bodies that we have, um, as does kind of movement and, and physical uh, locomotion that we have, um, then bodies uh, start to play more important roles in explaining cognitive phenomenon. Um, so that's the kind of umbrella idea, I think, or the... Um, the central theme that you'd find in all versions of embodied cognition. But one particularly helpful way of breaking down what's, go what's going on in embodied cognition that I found is um, by a philosopher named Lawrence Shapiro. Shapiro argues that there are actually three different hypotheses uh, that are being put forward. One has to do with human concepts. So the basic concepts that we use in our thinking, a concept like dog or electron or fire, um, that those concepts are grounded 
in our perceptual sensory motor states. Um, a second hypothesis, uh, which he calls the replacement hypothesis, proposes that we should replace explanations uh, that rely on internal mental models of the world. That is, you know, everything's in our head and our brain. We've got this model in our brain that we're working on and processing with cognition. Um, we should go from that kind of explanation and replace it with an explanation that involves far more interaction with the world and constant feedback um, and checking back with the state of the world using our bodies um, to explain various cognitive phenomena. Um, and thirdly, there's a constitution hypothesis, which uh, suggests that cognition isn't only taking place in the brain. Perhaps there are also bodily states, such as emotional bodily states, which are part of cognitive processes. And perhaps it even goes beyond the skin as well as the skull. Perhaps we also offload some of our cognitive processing onto the external world uh, when we keep notebooks or diaries or interact with our smartphones. Um, often we offload our memory onto those kinds of media. Um, so those are, uh, you know, I find that way of dividing and conquering body cognition saying there are three separate ideas going on here to be quite helpful. Um, and I use that then to structure the rest of the book to say, okay, well, first let's think about human concepts and then let's think about this more embodied, um, interactive way of thinking about cognition, which perhaps also spills over into bodily states and, and the external world. Um, and let's kind of have slightly separate conversations uh, with theology around each of those themes. I hope that's clear enough, but please come back at me if I've... Uh... That's actually, it's a really, really elegant summary of a, a chapter in your book, which does a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of um, serious engagement with the, the science, with the scholars. Um, so, so thank you for summarizing it so beautifully. Um, and your book does, as you, as you mentioned, does then turn to theology and get into how theology, which is, of course, how we, how we think, how we know about God, might be influenced by the fact of our bodily embodied existence. Um, you explore this from a few different angles, but I wonder if you could tell us about why the incarnation in particular is so important for your argument. Yeah, absolutely. The, the incarnation is important because I kind of um, parachuted in at the end of chapter four as the... Uh, magical solution in Christian theology that seems to address all the problems that I spend two chapters uh, <laughs> crafting and, and raising. Um, why is it that kind of uh, silver bullet? Well, the problem that I set myself is um, to say that if concepts need to be grounded in our embodied experience in some way, um, then that poses a real issue for theological concepts and abstract concepts um, about transcendent deities. Um, so let me unpack all of that and try and take you on the journey of part two of the book, chapters three and four, um, to, to walk you through that a little bit. So this part is focusing on that bit of embodied cognition um, that considers the way in which human concepts are grounded in um, embodied experience and rely on the perceptual content 
um, that we have. Um, so there's a lot of embodied cognition research here, which uh, proposes that um, the concepts that we have, which are the kind of mental, mental representations that we use when we think, when we produce speech, when we reason about things, um, that these concepts uh, relate back to our perceptual modalities, the different kinds of modes of perception that we have. Um, so there's a contrast here between a way of thinking about concepts um, that is abstract. So think of the concept of dog, and uh, you know one might produce, one might propose a theory of human concepts that says that. Well, how do I know what a dog is? Well, I can have some kind of formal definition, like it's um, a, a creature with four legs and a tail that um, barks, or something along those lines. Um, or so some kind of dictionary definition which relies on other concepts. And so every concept is defined in terms of other concepts. Um, contrast that with a um, view of human concepts uh, that says, well, when I think of a dog, what I'm really um, conjuring up in my mind's eye, if you like to speak a bit somewhat metaphorically, is all of the perceptual content that goes along with dogs. Uh, so what a dog looks like, what a dog sounds like, what a dog smells like, what a dog is like to interact with physically and, and pattern and all those kinds of things. Um, and then, and so I use that perceptual content that embodied experience of a dog. Um, and when I think of dogs and remember dogs or reason about dogs, then what I'm doing is simulating some of that perceptual content. Um, and it, it constitutes my concept of, of what a dog is. Um, so there are various experiments that people have run uh, and various empirical evidence which uh, favours the embodied version of the story um, right through from brain lesion studies where people have localised brain damage which impairs certain kinds of concepts and not others. Um, and so if you lose, uh, quite tragically, um, uh, specific areas of, of your brain uh, which are involved in visual processing, then it, you tend to lose animal concepts, but not concepts for hammers or tools or artificial objects. Uh, which is quite strange if concepts are just um, all similar and they're, they're all abstract representations, uh, but if they're linked to our kind of embodiment, then that evidence seems to favour the embodied account. There's then also neuroimaging studies, behavioural studies, I won't take you through all of them, um, but people have kind of, uh, researchers have built a, a cumulative case uh, as to why we might want to favour the embodied account. There's also good philosophical reasons for doing so in that um, if your concept is purely symbolic and uh, defined in terms of other symbols, then you end up on what some philosophers have called a symbol merry-go-round. Um, think of yourself as trying to learn a new language, um, say uh, Mandarin Chinese, if you don't speak Mandarin Chinese, with only a monolingual dictionary you know, if you want to know what one word says, uh, you look it up in the dictionary, you're just going to find other characters and representations of other words, um, which are equally opaque, you don't understand, you don't have a way into the system. 
Um, and so uh, the problem with defining concepts symbolically in terms of just other symbols um, seems to make you get caught in this symbol merry-go-round where, where none of the symbols um, is meaningful and, and links back to the outside world. The perceptual account gives you a way of doing that. It gives you a way of grounding concepts uh, because at bottom they somehow relate back to embodied experience and, and that perception. So think back to the dog, think back to the smells, the sights, the sounds, um, and that's what gives us our ability to conceptualise this thing in the outside world um, because we're not caught in, in this constant labyrinth of symbols. So that's the theory of concepts, and there's a little, there's um, kind of a growing body of, of empirical evidence which people are marshalling uh, in favour of the embodied account. There's philosophical reasons for perhaps endorsing an account which proposes that we need to ground human concepts in, in perception, in embodied experience. Um, there's then a, a, an auxiliary question about what about abstract concepts? Well, you know, that, that works really well for dogs. It works really well for things that you can touch and smell and, and uh, see and hear. But what about concepts uh, which aren't readily accessible um, to our perceptual modalities in that way? Uh, what about electron or democracy or um, uncle um, or concepts? It's very difficult to put a very uh, fixed, concrete um, perceptual content uh, to um, so there's then various ways in which people try and marshal abstract concepts in, but I argue that this is an especially a, an issue in theology where um, we're talking a, about concepts of um, transcendent realities um, and the most difficult and most abstract of, of the concepts is perhaps the concept of God, uh, which in classical theological thinking um, you know, God isn't an object in the world. God isn't a thing in the world. God isn't immediately available to our sensory perception. We can't um, just go over and shake God's hand um, or interact with God in the way we might interact with other um, living beings or, or objects in the universe. And so um, by definition, God is a really tricky concept um, to ground. Uh, and not only is it tricky to ground in that it's not obvious what the perceptual content would be, um, there's an added theological difficulty that if you um, associate God with perceptual content, then there's a theological risk of idolatry, of reducing God to um, some kind of graven image, to domesticating God conceptually. Um, and so there's a dilemma here, uh, which I think this sets up in theology, um, Either we have um, a grounded concept which is graspable by humans but seems idolatrous, or we have this kind of really abstract concept uh, which doesn't commit idolatry but also isn't grounded in our perception and therefore it's not easy to see how it's meaningful for human beings. So I kind of um, coined this term, the grounding idolatry dilemma, um, and I uh, propose eventually that the incarnation is a really neat theological solution um, in that it allows for um, anth anthropomorphism without idolatry. It allows for um, a being which 
who is available to our sensory perception and for whom we do have records of bodily interaction, uh, perceptual mediation, um, and yet uh, in Christian, in the Christian theological understanding is by definition God. Um, and so therefore kind of gets us out of this grounding idolatry dilemma. Um, so there's a really long story. I mean, you kind of um, asked the question, which took me to the end, and then the incarnation is eventually the uh, the kind of solution to the, the problem I set up. So I hope you don't mind me talking through um, how I get there and, and why embodied cognition in particular um, sharpens this question of how do humans conceptualize God if all our concepts um, are embodied concepts in, in some fashion. Um, in many ways, this isn't a new problem, right? Uh, theologians have, have long kind of grappled with how do us finite, limited humans um, conceptualize a transcendent God? Um, and there's been a lot of um, discussion around ways of doing that through metaphor or through analogy. Um, and so in many ways, uh, some of the central ideas are already old hat in theology, but I think embodied cognition gives them a new spin and a new sharpness if we're asking how to, how do we kind of relate um, concepts back to our embodied understanding. Thank you. It really does. It really does um, give you that freshness. And it, reading um, some of the topics that you engage with through the lens of embodied cognition, for me, it, it really did. Um, yeah, it did bring it did bring a new a new spin to some some of these ideas, which you know can be considered a bit dusty and a bit sort of a bit boring. It really did. Um, yeah, bring a spark to it. Um, so this your next chapter looks at how religious cognition is affected or or maybe assisted by factors outside the brain. This chapter is, is packed with examples, which I must say I found an absolute delight to read. Just looking through some of the subjects you engage with here, um, gesture, posture, ritual behavior, the objects of prayer, clothing, incense, materiality of texts, pilgrimage I'm, I'm just reminded of how rich this chapter this chapter is um i'd love to pause on each of these but unfortunately time won't allow it so i wonder if you wouldn't mind just picking one of these subjects and maybe unpacking it from the perspective of embodied cognition gosh yeah where to begin um i mean we've moved on now to that uh kind of second and third hypothesis within embodied cognition that i flagged at the beginning we're thinking now about um, is cognition, rather than just being processing on an internal mental model, is it relying on us interacting with the outside world? Uh, or does it even overflow into the outside world uh, and our bodies? Um, and I think these theories of embodied cognition, these hypotheses, um, raise really interesting questions for religious practices, religious rituals, um, religious material culture, and what's going on when, uh, when those um, are being used in religion? What, what are the cognitive implications? How do we understand them from, uh, in the frame, within the framework of this new paradigm of thinking about cognition as extended or distributed or situated um, in a particular environment and among particular objects? Um, gosh, so yeah, as you say, I, I've, 
I kind of point out that there are many different examples um, that come up in embodied cognition which try and pinpoint the way in which um, our our bodies or our environments shape the way we think. Um, I I should hasten to add that I kind of put a, a little question mark at the beginning uh, of of the second major part of the book um, in saying that this is really new science. Um, it uh, it's also been somewhat beset by what's known as the replication crisis, where um, scientists have attempted to rerun studies that have been published in the past and found different results, uh, which kind of puts a question mark against the initial results sometimes. Um, there's also other issues uh, because it's such a new area of science. So unlike, you know, I think in the first part where you've got cumulative evidence of lots of different scientific methodologies being brought to bear on human concepts in this area, um, I think one needs to be a little more tentative with uh, scientific findings um, as they stand at the moment. So hopefully we will uh, kind of get more and more um, clarity as as people continue to investigate these kinds of um, cognitive mechanisms. So, so what are the mechanisms um, that I think are interesting? Well, um, there are ones such as um, memory, and posture or memory environment interacting. So in one fun study, um, experimenters got participants to memorize a list of things either above ground or um, diving underwater, um, and then found that when they got people to recall the list of things they'd memorized, they were faster at doing so if they were in the same environment that they learnt them in. So if they learnt them underwater, they're faster underwater. They let them above ground, they're faster above ground. Um, um, similarly, body posture and memory interacting, if you adopt the same body posture in which you um, learn something faster at recalling it. Um, um, studies such as synchronized movement, if you move in sync with other people, um, there's been shown to be a social bonding effects. Um, and so one of my observations here is that many of these mechanisms um, are quite general. They, they might have um, application across a wide range of things. We move in sync in all kinds of settings. We do it in football stadiums. People do it in marching bands or military drills. Um, but we also um, see these kinds of activities taking place in religious settings, in rituals, uh, where there's a lot of synchronized movement. Um, and so... Um, we shouldn't be surprised if these kinds of effects are also um, taking place in the setting of religious rituals. Um, so, well, to pick just one, um, I mean, the case of incense is interesting because um, incense has been shown to have um, a kind of mild psychotropic effects that makes us feel a bit warmer, a bit happier. Um, there was an interesting case a few years ago in the UK where the government proposed some quite wide-ranging legislation to ban all psychoactive substances with a list of small exceptions, such as tobacco and caffeine. Um, and it was thought that this wasn't particularly well-written legislation because it might include things unintentionally. Um, and interestingly, Anglican cathedral deans um, who... 
um, became these kind of political activists around this issue because uh, they were concerned that incense would no longer be allowed to be used in um, in cathedrals and liturgies uh, and and Christian worship. Um, so there's just one example of um, uh, uh, something having quite a direct embodied effect um, in in the setting of a, of a religious ritual. Um, this incense or Botswana or frankincense um, can make us feel a little bit warm and happier. And that seems to be in keeping with the fact that it's used that on high feast days, on celebratory occasions, uh, it seems to fit what what's tr- the liturgy is trying to do uh, in, in those kind of settings. Mm. That's wonderful. Thank you. And that's a fantastic pivot to uh, the, your next chapter, which, which turns to look at liturgy. Um, and actually, like anthropology, I think this is an overlooked element of theology, uh, especially, uh, at least in my experience, um, at university, uh, and especially in Western Christianity. Um, now, one commonly held view is that theology, you know, knowledge of God, is it's something worked out by theologians who are sitting at their desks or in their caves or wherever they find themselves, and that liturgy then reflects or expresses that that prior knowledge about God. So can you tell us why you disagree with that view and why liturgy is so important for your project? Yeah, thank you. Um, And you're right, this kind of seventh chapter um, does get a lot more theological. The previous chapter, I think, can be um, read as a religious studies chapter, essentially, right? You're, You're... thinking here about religious rituals and what's t- taking place cognitively in them. Um, and what this um, penultimate chapter is trying to do is, is to, um, having kind of done that, that work, bringing cognitive science to bear on ritual in a religious studiesy kind of way, in a way that outsiders would be quite comfortable um, speaking about um, this Next chapter then kind of tries to think through what are the implications for theology, um, and you've you've captured one of you know the central idea um, in that chapter very nicely. It's the idea that um, that the meaning of liturgy isn't just symbolic; it's not just there um, to express what we already think, but because of all of these. Uh, potential mechanisms that I've suggested in the previous chapter. Um, when we participate in a liturgy, um, things happen to us. Uh, our, uh, there are cognitive effects. There are ways in which um, our cognition is nudged or shaped um, through participating in that liturgy, through moving in sync, through adopting particular body postures, through inhaling that slightly psychotropic incense, um, that uh, through listening to the music, through having particular images in stained glass windows, again, with human figures in particular body postures or um, in statue or um, through having buildings organized in a particular way so that we can move about them in in particular patterns. Um, And so because uh, if, if we kind of take this new paradigm and think of cognition as involving all of this material culture and and cognitions being 
shaped uh, by these kind of embodied factors, then what I propose is that we get a very different view of what liturgy is. Um, we get uh, a view of liturgy that isn't just symbolic. It's not, you know, its meaning isn't just arbitrary conventions that are assigned by the tradition, um, but the meaning also arises from the kinds of embodiment that we have. So um, if you uh, kneel in prayer, for example, adopting that posture um, uh, says something, conveys something, affects you in certain ways. Um, if you were to kneel by doing a handstand, um, you know, in theory, if, if all of, if the, the kind of bodily form um, purely has its meaning by some kind of convention, then you could easily just associate the same convention with the handstand. But um, I suggest because something quite different is going on bodily in bodily terms with the handstand, um, it's going to have different connotations, cognitive effects, um, and therefore the embodiment matters, um, the material culture matters, um, and it, it feeds in to the meaning of what's going on in the liturgy. Um, and so therefore liturgy itself is perhaps a storehouse of theological knowledge and understanding. Um, and uh, again, we need to come back to anthropology if we are embodied creatures and liturgy is something which accommodates our embodiment. It is a way of communicating to embodied thinkers, a way of shaping and forming embodied agents as well. Um, so that's that's kind of the theological payoff, if you like, for the second part. Um, if all of this stuff, uh, if all of the material culture and the embodied aspects of ritual and worship um, are important, then let's go back and rethink our anthropology and let's also appreciate how liturgy is accommodated to the kinds of beings that we are as embodied creatures. I love that idea of liturgy as a storehouse of, of theolo theological content or theology. It's such a provocative idea. And I, I think it really, really beautifully sum it up in your book. Um, so moving now to your concluding chapter, um, I think this this is a brilliant conclusion because it doesn't only recapitulate your previous arguments, but it also looks in some depth at the the implications of your findings for other theologies, for example, feminist theology, um, womanist and black theologies, and theologies of disability. So, why was it important for you to to include these in your in your book? Yeah, fabulous question. I mean, the book started its life as a doctoral dissertation. Um, so it was uh, kind of written in that format. And in the conclusion, I had this section on directions of future research, which I think is quite a common strategy in doctoral dissertations where you say, you know, I didn't have time or space to include all of these things, but aren't there, aren't there all these interesting connections with other bits of theology, other schools, other movements, other ideas? Um, and then when it came to turning the dissertation to a book, I, I felt I really had to rework this quite short conclusion into a substantive chapter. Um, and uh, what I was trying to do here, you know, originally was to flag, oh, you know, I'm not the first person in theology to talk about embodiment by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, in fact, at the forefront of thinking about embodiment have been theologians of disability, 
uh, black womanist feminist theologians. Um, and so I felt I needed to engage and try and link up a, a little bit the kind of approach that I was taking with these far longer, better established uh, traditions of thinking about the body in theology. Um, I still think it's a bit of a risky chapter. Um, it risks kind of sticking these theologies on as, as an, an appendage or an addendum at the end. Um, it risks having far too little space to, to do justice and to, to really think through carefully the ways in which um, the body has featured in, in each of those theological movements. Um, but at the end of the day, I felt the risk of not attempting the conversation uh, was even greater. So um, if, I've, if I've done a somewhat piecemeal and, and paltry job in this final chapter, um, I can only apologise, but I felt it was really important to acknowledge that um, embodiment um, had already been such an important theme in, uh, for one of a better term, these contextual theologies. Um, and so one way one can detect this and look at this is to note that a lot of these theological movements have taken inspiration from a French philosopher, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, um, who interestingly, uh, and not, uh, which isn't you know that common for French continental philosophers, um, was an inspiration for embodied cognition. So his work, The Phenomenology of Perception, um, thought very carefully about embodiment and argued that we don't just have bodies, but we are bodies. Uh, our subjectivity um, relies on the kinds of bodies that we have. Um, and so this phenomenological approach, this philosophical approach, uh, has been used uh, in feminist thought as well as in um, theologians of disability, for example. Um, and what I was trying to quite modestly propose in, in this chapter was that, well, if, you know, if Merleau-Ponty has been a helpful resource uh, for these theologies, then embodied cognition can perhaps um, extend that conversation and um, bring it forward a, a few steps by linking up here with cognitive science as well. Um, I also returned again to uh, the incarnation as a key idea and note that many of these theological movements have um, found ways to uh, to own the incarnation, for want of a better term. So, you know, one might think of Nancy Iceland's um, pioneering work in disability theology, uh, The Disabled God, in which she points to the resurrected body of Christ as still bearing uh, wounds and therefore being a disabled body, and that being a symbol um, which challenges um, other ways of thinking normatively about the body. Um, and um, feminist theologies, likewise, have used the Christa image, for example. Um, so many of these theological movements have found ways to, um, uh, to connect with the incarnation, to say the incarnation speaks to this theological movement, um, so in the same way that I found the incarnation helpful as an accommodation to embodiment, um, that kind of resonated with those ideas uh, in, in those theological movements um, because they 
point out quite quite helpfully that embodiment isn't um, uniform and homogenous. Uh, human bodies come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. There's a huge range of bodily diversity. And so if we're arguing that God accommodates the kinds of embodiment that we have, then we also need to think quite carefully about the bodily diversity being accommodated um, as well. Well, for what it's worth, I think it's a really apposite and engaging way to finish what's a really really excellent um, read, an excellent book, an excellent contribution to, to theological scholarship. Um, well, Tobias, we've taken up a lot of your time already, but before you go, um, have you got any upcoming projects or publications you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, great question. Yeah, I'm starting to think on about next things uh, to be working on. Um, one area I'm engaging a little with is transhumanism, uh, so a movement which argues that we need to uh, embrace new technologies to augment our bodies or even escape our bodies altogether and upload our minds um, into some kind of informational system. Um, and that as you uh, could probably imagine, uh, has very interesting connections and raises really interesting questions about embodiment. So I'd like to think a little more about that. Um, I eventually want to um, kind of, again, thinking about embodiment and theology. Um, one of my little pet projects uh, that I've been thinking about nurturing is to work on a theology of sleep, uh, to look at the science of sleep, how sleep uh, helps us, how it affects us, why we need sleep. Um, sort of interesting science there. And um, I'd love to bring that into dialogue with theology, um, partly because I have an 11 month old daughter. And so um, sleep and sleep deprivation are uh, very poignant parts of my embodied experience at present. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to think through that. Um, and then looking further down the track, um, one of the areas I'd like to also work on um, is uh, eco-theology, and in particular asking how psychology and, and, again, cognitive science might be helpful for that area of theology. Um, it seems to me that some of the central ideas in eco-theology are that, you know, if you hold a certain kind of theology, then that affects the way in which you relate to the um, your environment, the natural world. Um, Lynn White Jr.'s classic claim that uh, theologies can make us very anthropocentric um, is one example. And so I think there's a psychological dimension to what's going on there. And it would be interesting to ask um, uh, more questions on how psychology can be helpful for eco-theology. Um, so that's a little way down the track. Tobias, those all sound like really fascinating projects, and I, I really look forward to tracking those. Um, I want to thank you so much for being on the show with me today. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for reading the book and tapping me on the shoulder to have this fun conversation. It's my pleasure. I've been speaking with Tobias Tansen about his excellent new book, Corporeal Theology, Accommodating Theological Understanding to Embodied Thinkers. It was published early this year by Oxford University Press, and I encourage everyone who's enjoyed our conversation today to get their hands on a copy. I'm Fraser McDiarmid for the Christian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Until next time.